0: Welcome to this week's Party Politics.
1: I'm Jay Iyer, a political science professor from Texas Southern University. And I'm Brandon Rottinghouse, a political science professor from the University of Houston. Thanks for joining us at our favorite hangout as we run down the news of the week and tell you why it matters. Well, Jay, the first thing on the list is a tragedy coming out of New York. What happened?
0: Yes, Brandon, we had another terror attack take place, this time in New York City. And it was much more in the mode of what we've been seeing in Europe, an individual, driving a rented vehicle, ramming into uh, helpless and uh, innocent civilians. It was actually in and around near a high school in New York City, tremendous loss of life and injuries. We don't know the full details, but we do know that the person in question is talking to authorities. He has claimed an allegiance with ISIS, and I think uh, the FBI and the uh, intelligence apparatus of the country are looking at it to try to figure out what happened. Um, the New York City Marathon is this weekend. That's going to go on. Um, but our thoughts and prayers are with the victims and with everyone associated with this.
1: Yeah. One other thing we know is that the president uh, fairly immediately blamed uh, the Democrats, including Chuck Schumer, who's a senator from New York, for allowing a program to exist, which essentially allowed this person to come into the country. Is this something that is is a logical reaction? I mean, is this particular policy to blame for what's happened? Uh, What do you make of the politics behind this?
0: Yeah, the politics, I think, are difficult. I mean, we've talked about this a lot with the president. I mean, we want our presidents to be sort of consolers in chief. This president is not. um, He uses this as an opportunity to sort of attack a program. It's something called the diversity visa lottery, which allows for underrepresented countries Individuals can apply for visas uh, into the United States. There's still a vetting process. It seems pretty clear, because this gentleman has been in the country for over a decade now, that the individual is likely radicalized here in the United States. So I'm not sure the the relevance of the visa. But all that being said, it certainly breaks with tradition and protocol to uh, immediately sort of
1: politicize an issue that otherwise uh, we try not to. Yeah, and this is a, it's a lottery. And so there's no way to be able to predict whether or not somebody from a different country will be able to come here. And the number is fairly low. It's capped at like 50,000. So it's unlikely that you're going to be able to really game that system. But I think you're right. The politics of this make it obviously front page news. And the fact that it's a loss of life in a terrorist style style situation obviously raises a lot of of flags for people.
0: Well, the president sort of shifted gears this week, and he's now declared war on the opioid crisis, he's, uh, he's recognized, I think, during the campaign it had been a major issue. There are tremendous pockets in and around the country where individuals have been become addicted to opioids, um, and it's become a real health crisis. Yeah. So, so what, what exactly has happened, and what did the president really do here?
1: Yeah, as you say, this is a real uh, health crisis, and it affects people in places where Donald Trump ran successfully well in 2016. So that's the Appalachia, it's the kind of old industrial Midwest, as well as some places in the Northeast. The president has declared a public health emergency, which lasts for 90 days. This allows for the Department of Health and Human Services to redirect some resources to combat opioid abuse. This is one step in the direction of having government address this issue. But this is a human issue, so it requires much more than just a kind of government solution. And it also requires, frankly, government to be able to really unify and develop the kind of full-scale tactics that are consistently applied across all of government to be able to address it.
0: So, Brandon, there's been a little bit of criticism about it, though, right? Because yeah. the president took, I think, what what some are describing as a half measure, rather than declaring sort of a larger, sort of national emergency, which would have automatically freed up uh, additional resources. Um, he did so, he did it something lesser, which essentially just promotes coordination and focus, but didn't
1: provide any additional dollars. Yeah. Yeah, I think part of the reason was that, that there's been so many disasters that the I think the White House didn't want to tap that money because of fear that there might be more such natural disasters. But I don't know that that was the best PR move here. Obviously, these things are all happening at once, and government has a, a role here. It's just that I think that, that they need to tighten their belts and make sure that they've got some way to address this financially.
0: Well, speaking of financially, uh. we've had <laughs> um, we've had a pretty significant policy sort of release that just came out. Yeah. And that is the House GOP released this much-awaited major tax reform uh, plan. Kevin Brady, the the chairman of the House Ways and Means, has been working really almost, I, I mean, I don't want to overstate this, almost his entire political career mm-hmm. crafting a pretty detailed plan. So let me just go over sort of the key things. I want to get your reaction to it, Brandon. So the top tier, of the top rate remains at 39.6%. There was no top rate cut. Um, the standard deduction, which uh, which most people get, will now be doubled. The ex- they expanded the child tax credit from 1000 to $1,600. Where you get into some of the controversy are things like the, um, uh, the home mortgage interest uh, deduction. Um, in the past, it had been sort of unlimited. They're now saying for any future purchases, it's going to be limited to half a million dollars, $500,000. They made no changes to 401Ks because that had been talked about retirement systems. Mm. And the big one being the corporate rate has now dropped from 35% to 20%. And the last one, which is causing a lot of sort of red state, blue state anxiety, is they want to change the deduction for state income taxes and property taxes. They Mm. want to allow 100% deduction for states with property taxes which are as their primary vehicle, which is disproportionately red states. And they want to limit state income tax deductions to only 10000 which are some of the larger high-tax blue states. So that's the plan. It's an interesting compromise. There's some good things about it. How realistic is this moving forward? They've spent a lot of time and energy. They think they've got support enough to pass it in the House. If it passes out of the House, does it, does it make it through the Senate? And can you get it all done in a year?
1: In a year, that's a tough call because obviously, although these— changes are going to be substantial. It's nothing compared to what all of the little exemptions underneath it are gonna register in lobbying and you know the jockeying from members of Congress and every other group who wants to have a little slice of this pie. So it's gonna take a lot longer than that. I think that's okay, this can take a while. Congress is not supposed to act quickly. This is too important. I think politically this is a, a good way for the Republicans to be able to right the ship. Uh, they need to get a win and this is a way to do it. I do think that they might run into some problems. I and mean, I think the red state, blue state issue is one. I mean, uh, it's clear that government, you know, um, tends to bend towards the will of those people who are actually participating. So having uh, mostly red states supporting the president was part of that. So I think that's one thing. The other thing I think it might have trouble with is the corporate rate. I think they're going to get pushed back on Democrats from that. So that's my initial read. Uh, what's your call? Yeah, I
0: think, you know, overall, it's, it's a, I think, a pretty good bill. What surprised me was the the willingness to not cut upper income brackets, which is what they had initially had talked about. So keeping that top tier at 39.6 is a pretty substantial, I think, uh, uh, recognition that the public just won't tolerate a
1: reduction in taxes hmm. for millionaires. Right. But and, they might shift what that income bracket looks like. I mean, that number stays the same, but like now, you know, people in that category might raise to 70, you know, $750,000, right? Right. From 500. So it could be that they tinker with the requirements, but not necessarily that percentage, right?
0: Yeah. And, and, and the home mortgage rate obviously is a big yeah. thing. That's one of the, one of the most popular uh, deductions. And the big issue there, I think, is will a $500,000 limit be enough From an economics perspective, it makes a ton of sense because you're seeing that particular tax disproportionately affects high-income people, especially north of $500,000, and so it it makes sense. And so there are there are enough elements that this is a surprisingly moderate tax reform bill. The big issue is it's about a trillion dollars in the red,
1: yeah, and 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 so
0: you're adding massively to the to the national debt. This is something the Democrats in in the past have tried to do. Because they think de- they've argued deficits haven't mattered. Republicans have been the opposite. Now it looks like we've had a,
1: a change of heart. Well, it's going to require a lot of compromise to get this done. And speaking of compromise, uh, the White House chief of staff, John Kelly, had made some pretty interesting comments about the Civil War and compromise. Jay, what did he have to say? Yeah,
0: he basically said, you know, the U.S. Uh, you know, one of the reasons they got into the Civil War uh, was an inability to compromise, to get to sides, compromise. Of course. We all know from eighth grade history class that is a massive misunderstanding, an out-and-out out distortion of the Civil War. We've had multiple compromises up until uh, the Civil War. The, the, the Constitution itself was written as a compromise document. Um, so I think every historian um, just basically said he just flat <laughs> wrong. I think John Meacham, who famously wrote the Andrew Jackson book, yes, yes. Uh, tweeted and Jefferson, yeah. and Jefferson yeah. as well tweeted out pretty aggressively <laughs> that John Kelly needs to read see, read his books.
1: Um, <laughs> it's a good way to get book sales. Off, yes, right? yeah. it is
0: a good way to get book sales. But yeah, it was sort of a silly comment. But I mean, you know, I think it it made uh, General Kelly look very very bad, yeah. um, and and I think. The interesting thing is how how quickly he was pushed back.
1: White House chief of staff do not need to give interviews. I don't know why this ever happens. Their job is to be the traffic cop inside the White House. And the fact that this blew up as it did is frankly no surprise, given what he said and the fact that it happened. It's not something that is a symptom of well-run White Houses. And it's an unforced error that White Houses can't afford to engage in, especially this one, when they're on the brink of tax reform. Right, something they need to have done.
0: Absolutely. Speaking of things blowing up, how was Michael Moore's one-man show? <laughs> Did it bomb? Was it a success? And,
1: and frankly, who cares? Jay, it's, I know it's not presidential to point this out, but the president needs to stop tweeting these kinds of things, right? So obviously referencing the notion that the president had, had tweeted at Michael Moore that the ending of his Broadway play was essentially a total bomb in his very capitalized letters uh, and statement. Uh, but that he prefaced it by saying that he shouldn't say it because it's not presidential to do it. So if you if you have to say it, then it's probably true. And that's a good sign that internally that it shouldn't be tweeted. I wonder what percentage of President Trump's tweets we would rate as not being presidential. Right. Or, or that he would rate as not. Presidential, exactly. Right? Now he's admitting that there are some that aren't. And so I wonder kind of how many of them in the past that that falls yeah. into. And, and just, you know, all comedy aside, this is essentially what we've talked about in the past.
0: This is Donald Trump trying to change the subject. This came out right around the time of the Mueller indictments oh, coming indictments out. Indictments, you say. Yeah. Exactly. And so all of a sudden, um, you know, you decide to do this. <laughs> but speaking of indictments, Brandon, let's take a quick little break. And when we come back, let's talk about the big sort of political bombshell uh, that we've been waiting for for a while. And that is the indictments against several key figures in the Trump campaign.
1: really big week in the White House world. We have a couple of indictments come down. We've had a guilty plea come down. All kinds of interesting revelations are coming out about some of the folks, especially Paul Manafort, who has lavish tastes. He has spent hundreds of thousands of dollars at clothing stores and rug stores. He's got multiple passports. He travels all over. If this were a Jason Bourne movie, Jay, you wouldn't believe it. So walk us through what's happening here in Trump land.
0: That's right, Brandon. And we cannot forget that Paul Manafort, we can't even talk about how much money he must be spending on hair dye because I can't imagine the amount of gallons of of chemical product to get get his thick bushy hair so black. But that being said, um, big week. Um, These were something that we'd expected for a very long time. And that's the indictment of of Paul Manafort, who was a campaign chair. Uh, for the Trump for President campaign. During the campaign, one of the foreign policy aides, George Papadopoulos, he actually pled guilty already mm-hmm. to a violation of the Foreign Espionage Act. Um, and essentially what we're talking about is, and, and this is an interesting thing, what what they've essentially getting these guys on is a provision in the act that essentially says that they did not register correctly um, while representing foreign entities before the government. Yes. Um, in this case, they were, they were representing uh, the government of the Ukraine while working and not, uh, not telling anyone they were representing the government, getting millions of dollars in, uh, for it, um, and it resulted in this. There's not a direct correlation right now to as it relates to the Russia scandal, but this is just sort of the opening salvo.
1: Yeah. I think that tells us a couple of things. I mean, I think, number one, clearly it's an unflattering picture of what's happening in the Trump campaign and to some degree the Trump White House. Number two, I think that it puts the special counsel and the investigation inside the Trump campaign in a very clear way, right? Papadopoulos had pled guilty and part of that story had him essentially trying to work out meetings with people who had dirt on on Secretary Clinton, uh, thousands of emails according to some of the uh, documentation. So this is something that definitely gets the prosecutor a step closer to trying to figure out what happened and possibly flipping some of these folks. I mean, do you think that the way that Mueller is sort of surrounding this problem Indicates that potentially some of these folks might flip, and then they might be able to build towards somebody inside the White House, which, frankly, is kind of where most of these investigations end up going.
0: Yeah, it's interesting because I mean, to come out immediately w- with indictments, sort of one by one, I think is, is an interesting strategy. And they weren't directly related, uh, you know, to Russian interference in the election. And so the question then being, is: Robert Mueller taking sort of a sequential approach um, and trying to go one after one, one after yeah. the other, as they come up. Um, the fact that Papadopoulos pled guilty, I think, is interesting. He may be the first, I think, to start talking. Apparently he wore wire too, right? Yeah, exactly. This, so. Exactly, War yeah. a wire. And then the other part is how quickly the Trump campaign and the Trump administration has distanced themselves yeah. from Papadopoulos, essentially saying that he was a volunteer. Yeah. He had a minimal to no role in it. Uh, they quickly, I think, found archived footage of uh, Donald Trump introducing him as one of his key members of his uh, foreign policy team. Carter Page, one of the former aides as well, and, and, and one of his assistants also has has talked about sort of the uh, the uh, relationship with Papadopoulos, but also this the fact that the Russia probate existed is an ongoing problem for them. Um, there's just a lot of smoke there now. And I think with the initial indictments, we're probably going to see more
1: of them coming out. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, the fact that this happened so quickly suggests that this is really a slam dunk, and um, although legally it'll have to be played out, um, it's certainly clear that they have a very sort of central idea of what they want to find and what they can find. So that's one thing to note. The other is I think you're right about defense. Um, How is it that the president is going to play defense on this? Um, The White House basically implied that this was not a big deal. It didn't really sort of show that there was real collusion, but it definitely is a political problem for the president. One of the other things we know is that when presidents in these circumstances stonewall like the White House has done, it tends to be the case that presidents not only number one are losing popularity, which we see the president doing, but also that typically Historically, the president has been involved. And so this, at least, um, if it holds true to kind of historic sort of history uh, and some of the broader trends, suggest that this really does go deeper. And that's why I think the special prosecutor probably is going to use this to get people to flip.
0: The interesting thing to me is, are we going to see more uh, Republicans, mainstream Republicans, start to turn on the president on this?
1: I don't think so. I mean, honestly, uh, most of the time in these moments, you find real unity amongst um, the party, and they really hold the line. In fact, I'm reminded of a, an internal poll from the Nixon administration about a month before the president resigned in the aftermath of Watergate, where they had taken a headcount and basically still the Republicans were together. That's something like 75 percent of all Republicans still supported the president a month before the president resigned. So... I don't know if this is going to break the Republican field. The fact that they can unify around these issues, like tax reform, like trying to get a budget deal together, may be the salvation for the party and may allow for Trump to continue to govern, although obviously somewhat battered.
0: Well, let's take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to tell you why this is so important.
1: So, Jay, this is obviously a major development for the Trump White House and for the political system. What do we take from this?
0: Well, I think what this does is it lends credence to the fact that the current administration may have real political problems. You're going to see major figures, I think, continue to be um, called to question. Um, You may see more, more legal problems. And how this affects the president's agenda, how it affects the country, the credibility, the stability of our system, all of this is going to call into question. Um, we may find ourselves, I think, really questioning um, sort of how the 2016 election process occurred.
1: And I think it goes to the core of our or how we see our democracy functioning. It's tempting to think about this kind of a interaction between the courts and the executive branches like chess, but I think it's more like shoots and ladders. So there's going to be lots of ups and there's going to be a very quick down. So we're going to see a lot more characters come and go. My guess is that if Mueller's able to put some of these issues inside the White House and the folks who are currently part of the White House team, then it's going to be a serious political quandary for the president as to how to deal with that. Typically, those members who are close to the president but not the president tend to be uh, excommunicated from the White House during uh, these kinds of moments. So that, I think, is to come is if it's the case that, that Mueller is able to continue that. It's also clear that Mueller tends to view this as a very broad mandate. And so it's not just about kind of one thing. Now he's broadened his sense of how there might be lawbreaking uh, to other issues. And that's something that other special counsels have done, and it has really hurt presidents. And finally, just getting at what the president knew and when he knew it. This is a standard kind of Watergate question that we ask since the Watergate hearings. And that's something that the president is going to have to come to account for. And they want to do that sooner rather than later.
0: Well, that's a wrap for this week. Remember, we also do a Texas politics episode, too, which you can download on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. As always, thanks to Houston Public Media, our producer extraordinaire, Edel Howland, and
1: thanks to our wonderful engineer, Big Audio, Todd Halslander. Leave us a review on iTunes because it'll help other people find the podcast. If you have any questions, shoot us a tweet at hashtag partypoliticspod or email us at partypoliticspod at houstonpublicmedia.org. I'm Jay Iyer. And I'm Brandon Rottinghouse. We'll see you next week.